0: Step into the realm of wellness with the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. In this installment, we will engage in an open and genuine discussion about Blue Monday, including addiction and mental health as we head into 2024. Dr. Tommy Mitchell will provide actionable strategies to navigate unforeseeable challenges at work and what you can do about them. And a doctor in Colorado is playing games for neurodegenerative diseases like MS and Parkinson's. The golden bachelor gets married, but is he actually a catch? And how do you know you're in a relationship? We'll continue with some dollars and cents talk with a plan to pay off your debt and increase your net worth. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast kicks off now. Blue Monday is a term that is often used to describe a specific day. This year, it's tomorrow in January that is considered to be the most depressing day of the year. The concept was first introduced in 2005 by a British psychologist named Dr. Cliff Arnold, and he devised a formula that took into account different factors contributing to a sense of gloominess during this time of year. And the formula includes elements like the weather conditions, debt levels, time since Christmas and time since failing new year's resolutions. Also low motivational levels and the feeling of a need to take action. Now, Blue Monday isn't perfect. It has faced criticism within the scientific community for its lack of empirical evidence. Nonetheless, we are going to talk about this with the chief executive officer at Nomina Wellness, Lisa Kelko. And she joins me on the line from Courtney, British Columbia. Good evening, Lisa. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, I, I must add that Nomina Wellness is a center for addiction and mental health, and it's the holistic healing of dual diagnoses and more complex treatment resistant disorders. So it, it sounds like great work um, that you do there. And and is this inpatient and outpatient treatment options?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we do try and provide that range of care and I think largely because what we've seen historically through the time that we've been operating and even prior to is that so many folks really struggle with mental health and it's something that we're just not talking about. So I'm really enthusiastic to be on the show today where we can look at that and particularly around you know, this idea of Blue Monday and what's happening with our, with our humans.
0: Yes. So, I mean, is it, boil? does it boil down to one day, January 15th? Is this, uh, you know, does it culminate in all of this or, or is it, you know, what are your thoughts on Blue Monday?
1: I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating in that I know, as you were mentioning, some of the critiques around it being the pseudoscience and, and not really empirically true. However, you know, there's a lot of data and even when we look at rituals in, you know, for time and memoriam that have really honored that getting past that winter solstice and moving into this gloomy period, a lot of us are just really fatigued. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the truth being that coming out of the Christmas season, a lot of those expectations being missed, the disappointments and resentments waiting to happen, you know, the financial pressures that we put upon ourselves, all of those factors that were really calculated in it. We really see that many folks move into that February time period, even, you know, that la- last window of January, struggling with their mental health. And it's, it's, you know, from a rehabilitation perspective and working in treatment, we see so many folks just really that's the year that they want to go and they want to get well and they want to do it before spring comes. <laughs> and,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: mental health and addictions treatment historically tends to rise um, because a lot of folks just reach that critical breaking point.
0: Right. And, you know, I had a listener text in that, um, they basically were using drinking as a coping crutch. And so is that what belies, um, addiction is mental illness? Is that typically are people, whether it be shopping or food or alcohol or drugs, um, or shoes, whatever the addiction is, um, is that, is there some mental health disorder, um, beneath that?
1: Frequently. I mean, I also recognize I'm a bit of a self-selecting bias in that many folks who come to us do choose to come to us because they are struggling with something deeper. But I will also mm-hmm. say I've never met somebody who struggles with addiction, who is like, wow, I can't wait to go and mess up my life today. It really is something that so many of our humans are deeply struggling with things that or self-medicating with things that are just being used to help them feel better. In a moment or you know trying to stimulate that reward pathway in their brain you know and understanding that underneath all of that oftentimes there's attachment traumas there's other depressive disorders there's anxieties there's things that are happening and we're watching this even move through our younger folks right now where technology dependence and other sort of addictive behaviors are rapidly increasing and so misunderstood in Canada, I know we've seen a lot of folks struggling even with cannabis um, disorders and, and the advent of psychosis accompanying that, where it's just something that we're not mentally kind of prepared for or to, to move through yet. But the short answer is, in my experience, yes, a lot of folks who struggle with addiction struggle with something more mental health oriented.
0: Right. And, you know, I've had a few uh, more than a few parents in my clinical practice concerned about their children, uh, their teenage children who, you know, may in fact have a a cannabis use disorder, um, you know, where where they describe it as, um, you know, smoking pot 24 seven, for example, never having had a diagnosis, um, but knowing something is wrong. There's other symptoms there as well um you know or also you know oftentimes it, it is cannabis um and you know they don't realize that you know a lot of people think cannabis is benign <laughs> what are your thoughts on that i mean i know some people can smoke here and there at a party every now and again and and not you know it doesn't impact their life but other people can't
1: absolutely and i think you know i want to always acknowledge for our family systems and our parents and even those of you know the generations of you know the 60s and 70s where they're like, we smoked tons of cannabis and it was completely different. And, you know, that Maui Wowie might look a bit different now than it did then. And what we're finding is a lot of youth and adolescents who are consuming cannabis or CBD products or THC products, they're, they're doing so with different strains that don't necessarily have the full cannabinoid protectors that we used to have back in the 60s and 70s when, you know, cannabis was also being used. And, and also looking at there's different social factors that are influencing and impacting them. And so it's a both and perspective for me in that these young adolescents, you know, they're growing up in a different world with different um, exposure to technology or other things. They're disconnected in a lot of ways. And the strains of cannabis don't have those protective features. And mm-hmm. so they are creating a lot of different dependence and abuse of it that we just didn't see previously. It's not that it didn't exist. I know a lot of the feedback we get is, well, cannabis is legal, yes, and alcohol is legal too, and both can be incredibly toxic and lethal. It's not questioning legality, but more just observing the data, and the data is indicating that many young folks are struggling because their, their brains, even in that developmental window, simply can't handle the vast amounts that are being consumed that are causing other mental health effects.
0: Mm-hmm. And and how can people know? And I, and I also hear this a bit from parents where they'll say, I wish that marijuana was never legalized as, as if it were never legalized, their child wouldn't have an issue with marijuana um, mm-hmm. or, or cannabis. Um, and i, I how do you, how does somebody know what their mental health issue is if they're using whatever substance they're using? So how is it that they can get a diagnosis? I mean, and and it's difficult, um, you know, to, we talked a little bit about alcohol withdrawal symptoms, uh, earlier. So it's difficult to, you know, get that diagnosis when you're, when one is drinking and maybe they don't even have a diagnosis. (laughs) Is that possible?
1: It, it is definitely quite challenging and, and, you know, what you're touching on, Marina, is one of the things that I hear so frequently when folks come in is that I was, quote, misdiagnosed, end quote, with X or Y or, you know, but really it was the substances or was this or was that. And, and that's the tricky part when we're looking at diagnosing because I always say it's a snapshot to a window in time. One of the benefits we have in terms of working in treatment and inpatient treatment specifically is that it allows us to slow everything down, clear out what may have been contributing from the substance use disorder, and then really start to see the clinical picture that emerges and get a better sense of what a human might be struggling with underneath. That's not something that, in my experience, can happen even in briefer, shorter-term treatment programs, and not that they're you know, ineffective. In fact, many of them are really trying to do the best they can and, and offering that briefer stay. But when we start to tease that part of, that apart, we see that underneath this substance use disorder, whether that be cannabis or alcohol or even a process addiction, we see that you know, there's other features that will emerge that give us a greater insight into what's really happening for our humans and how their, their system is responding to their distress that allows us to really do that dual diagnosis and say, hey, maybe you were self-medicating with this, you know, because it's replicating some sort of euphoric need. Or, you know, when we work with folks who struggle with, say, sex and love addictive behaviors, oftentimes we'll see they have a concurrent cocaine use disorder. Well, it's not really that far off when we think about that cocaine will activate the same neuroperceptors of the brain as, say, sex and love addictive behavior would. So, you know, we kind of tease out one see another but then underneath that we really recognize that some of these folks may be struggling with, you know, some sort of trauma or they may be struggling with their attachments and you know some other deeper depressive symptoms that they're just seeking anything to make them feel better in that moment of euphoric pleasure seeking.
0: Mhm. Can it be a learned behavior as well if somebody's parents are drinking excessively is it something that they could have learned? Absolutely.
1: And From, you know, from kind of the emerging research, we know that we've seen that epigenetic model that says, hey, you know, there's this genetic component to it, and we've also seen old literature and other research that says, no, it's a social problem, and, you know, these are moral failings, and I think we've moved a long way since then to really understand it as, again, that both-and perspective. And so looking at that in terms of the stress diastasis model that we now are emerging and using is that it tells us that, You know, there's a genetic factor or biological factor that some folks are predisposed to, addictive behaviors. And there's also those stress factors of life and living that come and kind of basically, we'll say, attack the DNA and kind of create Mm -hmm. the environment for that DNA to be awakened or that genetic factor to really be exposed. And that can cause a lot of the efforts or the adaptive coping strategies and or maladaptive coping strategies that people develop. Sometimes it can be environmental. Sometimes it can just be, you know, they've got great family systems, and family systems are like, we don't know how this happened. But it's that both and where sometimes there's genetic material that just needed this stress inoculus to happen, and the two combined create that, that perfect storm, if you will, of an addictive behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, it can also bring on like somebody may just start using substances, and then start to have panic attacks associated mm-hmm. with um, that. They maybe aren't medicating; they're not self medicating the panic attacks. The panic attacks are actually the result, or even psychosis from some of the cannabis products today.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and that's again, you know, part of that that nervous system disruption that might be happening you know so they Mm -hmm. they may be starting to just use cannabis recreationally and you know they're having a great time and they're social and you know they're engaging in in life and then over time their nervous system is just getting more dysregulated and or you know their their processing is getting more disrupted and they don't realize it and then all of a sudden now their body is, is stressed and responding to that and then you know it, it develops a panic disorder in response too. And then particularly with the fear of losing that coping strategy, because now it's this and this. And so that fear of losing the, the thing that they may have been using to make them feel better is further going to excite the panic.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, do you have patients coming in who are drinking excessively and, and wanting help? And, you know, do you put them through a weaning process?
1: So it's a bit of a both-and. You'll hear me use that probably far too often in our conversations, but we do have folks that can come in um, that may be seeking help weaning off of alcohol, I Mm -hmm. want to always be clear that when we're working with our folks in our facilities specifically, we are not a medical detox. And so we actually encourage folks where they might need that stabilization um, to have that, that opportunity first. Um, And if they're at a level where they require that, but if it's something that is more supported by a social detox and, you know, kind of having that graduated weaning off as you're describing, or that kind of reducing down, it's definitely Mm -hmm. something that we've seen you know, folks being able to, we were able to support that or folks needing that, but we also really want to be mindful of, you know, sometimes when folks are ready for treatment, we we may say like, hey, you know, this is what we're going to recommend, but we've got one shot at this. And so that's where we have to work collaboratively to make that decision to say, you know what, maybe maybe they're going to land once in treatment. Let's get them the best experience and let's work with what we can. And that might include kind of doing a detox, even though we don't, represent ourselves as being a primary detox. Right. You know, sometimes we just have to meet folks and work with what we've got, but always do, always wanting to do so in a way that represents putting their safety first.
0: Yes. Um, it's a, you know, it's something that affects, I think, every family and I, or everybody probably knows somebody who has used substances uh, to their detriment or maybe um, use them as self-medication and can see, maybe on the outside, you can see somebody whose life is failing perhaps, or they're having difficulty um, in life and they may not be able to see it uh, as well. Insight is a, is a gift. And, and so it's very challenging. But what are some of the, I know you have intensive healing programs. What are some of the strategies utilized at Nomina Wellness?
1: Well, I mean, we typically, we try and start by this, by a whole centered holistic approach. And so, you know, some of the specific strategies we would look at is kind of even looking at, you know, what is the family system and how are they operating? Um, What is the individual? How are they utilizing, you know, from a very strengths-based approach, how are they utilizing their adaptive behavior or their maladaptive behavior to help them cope? Also, you know, working with, say, integrated nutrition or really integrating, I always joke, it's like we're taking DBT strategies and breaking them down in such an applied way that you can't really say it doesn't work because, you, you know, you're actually living it and seeing the benefits of it. So when we're moving our, our folks through, say, their group therapy process in the morning and we're digging up all of these big emotions – we move them right into exercise therapies after that where they're literally applying that intensive exercise and the tip strategies and and, and seeing the therapeutic benefits of it. And then we know that the best time to eat is 30 minutes post-workout for hormone regulation. So that's where we move them right on into lunch. Mm -hmm. But in that space of really trying to break down the building blocks of things that they may not effectively be able to do independently in that therapeutic work and leaning from and taking from various you know, therapeutic approaches and therapeutic modalities that are evidence-based and proven, but may not work in isolation because it's it's too overwhelming for our folks. They just, you know, they like, you know, that idea of like, well, DBT alone isn't going to help me. Cold showers alone isn't going to help me. Therapy alone isn't going to help me. But all these things together may.
0: Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really a combination. It's not really one thing. Um, but but say somebody's at home, they can't afford inpatient. Um, treatment or, or even outpatient treatment, S- say they're at home, um, are these the kind of strategies that they can try and adopt, like replacing if they have a desire to have a beer or something or a drink, um, go take a walk? I mean,
1: absolutely. Is... Yeah. Go ahead, or healthy and think,
0: strategies, yeah.
1: Sorry, yeah, and I was going to say, like, I think that that's, that's part of the biggest challenge, you know, and we hear that very often in recovery circles, you know, the the, the phone is the heaviest when you need to pick it up and make that first call. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I understand that's why that belief of like, well, this isn't going to work or the cold showers isn't going to work or the walk isn't going to work. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and and that's fair because it might feel like the problem of drinking is so much bigger than what a cold shower can solve. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's that validation and acknowledgement. However, it's taking those little steps and, and for folks at home, you know, where inpatient may not be accessible, outpatient may not be accessible, even counseling Mm -hmm. may not be accessible. It's, You know, there are different ways that the Internet, the world according to Dr. Google, is a vast Mm -hmm. sum of information, (laughs) but equally, it's opened up that vast sum of information. and, And part of that first step is figuring out, like, what are the things that really resonate with you as an individual and that you may want to give a try? And maybe that's the objective, say, for the next day or the next week or the next month and setting those micro goals of I'm just going to try this cold shower every day for the next five days. And if I do it, that's great. And if I don't, I'm just not going to beat myself over it because mm-hmm. I'm going to try. But what I can guarantee you is that it is effective and that it will suck. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah. it's like we just set that realistic expectation we can, you know, you can start to see the benefits of that. But if we just do it once, it's just going to be something that sucks. Right. We don't want to do it again. So it's building up that continuous momentum.
0: Exactly. Now, do you do group therapy there or like a 12-step, um, have a 12-step community within the program?
1: So we we do have 12-step support. We have an introduction to the 12 steps. For our addictions treatment programs as well as other modalities we use a lot of smart recovery Uh, we were just attending Dharma recovery you know we really try and bring in multiple pathways to healing because we know there's no single point of success but Mm -hmm. equally really the value in so many of these programs is in the community it's getting out it's connecting with other people it's really starting to build you know a peer network of folks who understand you And who can call you on your stuff and be like, hey, I see you're struggling.
0: Lisa, I've got to let you go because we're up against the clock. Thank you so much. We'll have to get you back because it's such an important subject. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk.
0: Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Hell Show. Thanks for tuning in on this chilly night in Canada. I really appreciate that. Hopefully you're somewhere warm. Um, We've got lots to talk about in this second hour of the program. We're going to be talking about bringing those electronics to bed. How does that impact your relationship? We're going to be talking about that with Dr. Tommy Mitchell. Also going to be talking about workplace bullying with Tommy Mitchell and the tragic outcomes, especially for black women. Um, Also, how do you know if you are in a relationship? How do you actually know? How many dates do you need to have? And what did you think of the golden bachelor's marriage? Do you actually think that guy was a catch? I'm not so sure. (laughs) Not sure I believe everything I hear or read though. Um, And we're just going to have a few tips about finances because that was a I got a lot of uh, messages last week about people with their credit card debt, and this seems to be the time of year that people are like, oh, what did I spend that on? What did I spend on that? Or how much did I spend? Or the credit card bills are coming in. And so I've got a couple of strategies for you to pay off that debt and um, make things just a little bit better for you. It requires a little bit of discipline, of course it does. Anyway, she is the go-to MD coach who empowers executives, leaders, physicians, lawyers, and other professionals to reduce burnout so they can increase productivity in the workplace and in their personal lives. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, awesome. That's great. Um, I do want to say if anyone has any questions or concerns about workplace bullying or other issues around leadership, the number to call or text is one 877 9898 If I weren't hosting this show, I'd send in my comments about it. I've certainly experienced workplace bullying, not once, not twice, three or four times actually, um, by a variety of different people in high level positions. And, you know, High, highly educated people. Uh, one was a doctor, um, and uh, also another was sort of a fake CEO. He'd been a copy boy <laughs> before he made himself CEO of a company. Um, you know, typically you see that kind of um, fake, you know, narcissist in who are bullies, um, basically. Anyway, another was a female. You know, that um, wanted a job that I had. You know, there's always a reason. Anyway, um, Dr. Mitchell, you. Uh, shared a very impactful and passionate and compassionate story about a woman who had been bullied and that ultimately led to her demise, Dr. Antoinette Candia Bailey. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that story?
3: Yeah, so she's a successful, educated African American woman who, like many of us, has experienced workplace bullying and disclose how it was affecting our mental health, leading to extreme depression and anxiety. And this is a post-COVID world where we talk about being open and talk about mental health and really stand up, have boundaries. Anyway, she reached out to her um, boss, the leader, direct Dr. Mowley, who is male Caucasian. And this, instead of supporting her, she felt even more abused and um, felt like her concerns, please for help, we're not taking seriously. And this tipped her over the edge, and she took her life just recently this past week. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is another unfortunate
0: loss that could have been prevented. So unfortunate. And um, she was in a, a very high position as well at Lincoln University. She was the vice president of student affairs at that university, correct?
3: Mm-hmm. So she's in vice president of the well-being of students at the university, and couldn't even live up, couldn't even be in
0: an environment which actually practiced what they claim to preach. Mm -hmm. And she disclosed that she was struggling with depression and anxiety, and and was that what exacerbated um, the bullying in the workplace allegedly? Yeah, so the workplace bullying made her mental health worse,
3: and we know how mental health and workplace go hand in hand. Right.
0: Well, even if somebody did not have an underlying anxiety or depression, it would lead them to get anxiety, at least, and and possibly depression and a complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, You know, in in this situation, when she reached out to her direct superior, it was a white male, um, and he allegedly had abusive behavior. And, um, you know, that must have left her feeling just so hopeless and powerless.
3: 100%. Often in organizations, when you have people who are supposed to be in positions to impact change, and they're feeling this way, and they're strong, educated, wise individuals, often you have to look up and you'll see where the problem is. Because the leader at the top of the food chain, so to speak, often sets the thermostat to the way they set the tone of organization. And a lot of responsibility was on this Dr. Mosley and he obviously, from what we're reading, dropped the ball and um, didn't do what he was supposed to do. And that is be a leader, be a healthy mm-hmm. leader, take people's concerns seriously.
0: And, and, you know, and he engaged, in, allegedly engaged in the bullying. And when somebody engages in bullying, it's, it's not a one-off uh, situation. It's typically a campaign and oh, somebody yeah. is targeted. Yeah, they want you out. They a lot of
3: people they create positions to say that they're you know open-minded. They want wellness, but really deep inside have no desire to have change, organizational change. These people that they hire tokens to make them look good on paper that they're standing up for diversity, inclusion, equity, and mental health and rights for all. But in reality, they have no desire for real change because that would require them to look within themselves and acknowledge that they are wrong in their behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and workplace bullying is so common, and it's not uncommon that it's supervisors, or team members, contractors, anyone in the office, and it can be verbal or nonverbal, and and it's somebody consistently harming or mistreating somebody that they work with, and you know, oftentimes people don't know that they're being that it that it is a case of workplace bullying. That, that's why I encourage people to write down anything. Anything that happens right from the beginning, right? The time, the date, anybody who was there, where you were, what was said. And I suggest writing it down in a notebook, um, pen and paper. I do everything online and everything on a computer, but not this. Um, And, you know, it's what are some of the um, what does workplace bullying look like? Well, this is the time you feel powerless, where you lose your voice, where you feel like, Oh, what's the point of saying something
3: and I'm just gonna get a reprimand or I, I feel my job is jeopardized or there's no real change. I feel like it's a sound like a broken record. And intimidation. Usually it's somebody in a power who has the authority to make your life to to affect your job, to really have others question your integrity, your your skill set. You know, it's it's a campaign. Bullying is not just one time thing. It's like it can be it can be very obvious, but it also can be behind the scenes. And that's often the hard, harder one to really pinpoint.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, it can be gossiping or spreading rumors about somebody mm-hmm. that happened to me, um, undermining an, uh, an employee's work that happened to me, keeping essential information from the person who needs it hello yep. me <laughs> um, giving people overwhelming or impossible deadlines that was me. Um, I was also completely overbooked I had um, where, where it was the case of the physician you know I, I would see I'd have you know like 10 to 15 patients booked in a day and oftentimes I had to spend an hour with some of these patients and then he would add more um, patients in three or four more in that day. I'd have no lunch. I'd have to come in early I was staying late. I was absolutely exhausted. And, you know, it, and that particular bully, it felt like it was a sport for him. I could see <laughs> that he had great pleasure in this. He got great pleasure out of this. And yeah, then, you know. So new to bullying. They've been, they're professional bullies. They've been bullying since their kids. Like this is, there's, this is the right.
3: that they have.
0: Right. And, and he had a complaint um, waged against his, himself and his MOA. And he tried to twist it and make it that it was, the complaint was against me. The patient actually called me and said, well, I called her. And then, you know, they, it was clarified. She's like, I have absolutely no problem with you. My problem was with the doctor and the MOA. And I wrote that in the chart, one line, uh, you know, um, patient absolutely, you know, hundred percent satisfied with my care. And he said, I saw your note, you know, it was against him, but anyway, I'm, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from it. It's very, very difficult to deal with. I was not the only one I com- waged a complaint and which I suggest that you do go with your documents, go and wage that complaint. And um, and that person has, you know, is no longer, um, you know, able to work in a certain institution. I was not the only one. In fact, he'd applied for a job and he did not get it because the women on the team said if you hire him we're quitting. So he'd been at this game for a while, which is typical what of what people do, but you know, it was such a tragic thing that happened to the vice president at Lincoln University. And do you think that there will be any consequences for the alleged bully or will they look into it in any way?
3: Um, I frankly i like to be optimistic, but unfortunately, this stuff goes on way too long. Um, it's a system problem. Until there's system okay. changes that are above the institution, we're going to continue to see this. So bullying, burnout, it's the three layers There's individuals that can do the best that they can do it. Then there's their team, the dynamics, uh-huh. and then the
0: system, the culture, the country in which you work and operate, bullying, harassment. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, I hate to cut you off, but we have a caller from Edmonton on the line. Hello, Mike.
2: Hello, Maureen.
0: Yes. Just
2: a quick question. I need some advice. So okay. I've been in two roles where I have been um, bullied
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm, so sorry. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how I can get, um, some help because I honestly believe that I have PTSD because of it, because I have anxiety and stuff. And I'm just wondering, um, do I have to be, do I need to talk to a psychiatrist or how does that work for you to be evaluated and, and know what you've been through and stuff?
0: Dr. Mitchell?
3: Yeah, thank you. That's a very common question I get at work. So first, I hope you have a really good primary care provider on your team who you can discuss with. And B, I hope you've also documented this and have that paper trail with the people that you have concerns about the bullying. Email is a great one, especially if they somewhat quasi-acknowledge that something happened and other collateral evidence from other people who might testify. Definitely a doctor, definitely seeing a psychologist is very important where they can talk about the impact. Um, And then work-related WCB actually can get involved in this it's getting it's becoming more and more common for people to be successful in work related bullying cases with WCB but i mean you need need everyone on your team you need a strong quarterback your primary care um care provider you need strong documentation and you need to just know that like, you are amazing and um, no job is worth your mental health then the day if this job is taking you to the edge then you nicely withdraw and you take a sick leave short term disability while you figure out your game action plan but I'm really sorry. This happens to both men and women, and it's wrong regardless. Uh,
0: and it certainly is. And it's typically a complex PTSD, Mike. And that's yeah. where you experience symptoms of PTSD, along with additional symptoms like difficulty controlling your emotions, or feeling really angry, or distrust toward the world in general. Are you experiencing any of that? Yes. Yes, you yeah. are. Yeah. So it's it's very important to get that help that you need. Are you still working in the environment?
2: Um, well, the first one, no. And I did go on WCB, and they did accept my claim and everything. And then the company, when I came back, ended up firing me. And then the second oh. one, um, I am still working at, and there's been some difficulties already and stuff. So,
0: Yeah. And are you, are you documenting? Yes. What's happening? Oh, that's good. And you know what? I wouldn't hesitate to contact a lawyer either. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Workplace bullying lawyer. I did. <laughs> and it was the best yeah. thing I ever did. So go for okay. it. Yep. Okay, thank Good. you. Um, Dr. Mitchell is still on the line. Um, but it's such a common thing. I I just wanted to make sure that I read at least a few of them. I left a 35 year career in healthcare because of workplace bullying that I did not wish to tolerate any longer. Bullying occurs at all levels in the healthcare hospital culture Uh, is certainly true. Um, I have an interesting story about how bullying prevented an important COVID management strategy from being implemented. Hi Maureen, I have an important story about how a manager at one of the hospitals prevented 250 patients from getting the care that they needed. And uh, sizzle and Steve workplace bullying. What to do if it's a collective agreement situation and the union will not help? You can't call a lawyer. I just quit with the intention of moving to another site. You know what? You can't. You can't call a lawyer. And I will say that it's very difficult when you're in a um, when it's a collective agreement. But I I still think and correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor. Um, Mitchell, but uh, still document, that's still very important um, to document and maybe going on stress leave. Um, anyway, so many, so many text messages, so little time. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for staying on the line. We literally have about a, a minute and a half uh, at the most. What is your, what are your thoughts on bringing the electronics to bed? Can it affect your sleep? Don't
3: do it. Bedroom should be for only for a few things. that begin with S. Sleep and sex.
0: That's don't it, do- huh? <laughs> <laughs> and snoring. Snoring. sleep after <laughs> you. <laughs> get that hooked up. Yes. Um, so, what happens when we bring our computers, tablets, readers, cell phones into our bed?
3: It confuses your brain. So, you instead of feeling relaxed, you feel more awakened. And that helps. That doesn't help you sleep. So, you don't get that restorative sleep, that rapid eye movement. Res- the importance of cognitive function, feeling good, especially you and your kids, everybody. So take keep those devices out. If you're going to have them, have the lights dim, um, minimize them, minimize them. Your sleep is precious.
0: And is it is it the light uh, mainly? Like, what if somebody listens to podcasts and fall falls asleep listening to a podcast after after S and S? Well, maybe it's a relaxing, you know, calming podcast. I don't know, but it's, it's, Jimmy. it's key. the light is key. The blue light is key. It's the oh, blue light. That's the problem. Okay. Light. Yeah. Very interesting. Do you, do you take your electronics to bed out there? one 877 That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. What do you think about bringing your electronics into bed? Um, and, and so, but it also can impact relationships as well. Yes. Yeah
3: of course you need to give your partner the focus you know that's how you get the s so like quality time
0: sleep F, sleep. right <laughs> we can say the word sex on the show i mean well, I, I said s and s that. sex and oh, yeah. snoring they yeah. go together um but yeah so typically you shouldn't be bringing have that blue light prior to falling asleep is that basic that essentially is- it Do not unplug unwind
3: and enjoy the gift of sleep.
0: Exactly, because good sleep makes for good days the next day.
3: Yes, you betcha.
0: Absolutely. Well, Doctor Mitchell, as usual, thank you so much. I really appreciate, um, really appreciate your contribution to the show. I'm just multitasking here, getting more text messages coming in. It's such a hot topic. Um, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to redress it again. Anyway, we'll have a wonderful evening. Have a great sleep. Thank you. we Will do. Healthy lifestyle changes. That's what this show is really all about, including exercise, have been shown to slow the progression of neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases like MS, Alzheimer's, or even Parkinson's disease. And so many people are affected um, with these particular neurodegenerative diseases in in Canada and and in North America. Um, I think we have about hundred thousand people in um, Canada with MS. Um, And you know, it can really impact quality of life. Um, One thing for Parkinson's, I know that, um, um, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on what it is, punching bags, (laughs) Um, the type of exercise that has been recommended um and it's not wrestling i'll have to if if you know 18773999898 um that that would be great let me know what it is but there's a particular type of um working out that is effective for parkinson's disease but there's a doctor in colorado who has uh his own idea he was diagnosed with ms and um he prescribes ping pong For neurodegenerative disorders, doing something good. And apparently he's this has gone. He he was an OBGYN, diagnosed with MS. He lost sensation and movement in one of his legs. He had to stop his um, practice, stop his career. And he's now prescribing ping pong for patients who have serious neurological diseases, like the ones that I mentioned. Um, he's now living with MS and he is the founder and CEO of table tennis connections, which is in Fort Collins, Colorado. And it launched the neuro pong program in 2021. I love this. You know, we're seeing a lot more of this. Um, hopefully we are seeing a lot more and you're hearing a bit more about it where food is thy medicine, you know, and let medicine be, be thy food. And also, uh, doctors are prescribing going out in nature for anxiety and depression and other, uh, mental health disorders. And now for neurodegenerative, we're seeing things like ping pong. There's somebody at my tennis club who has Parkinson's and you know they that the exercise that the tennis she was saying you know is really helpful um for her uh Parkinson's so you know he may be onto something here the doctor is Dr. Antonio Barbera and he you know has started this and the group gathers three times a week uh to play ping pong or table tennis sometimes people call it that and the program has actually um, expanded to other cities in the U.S., and the doctor is collecting data to determine the effectiveness of the treatment, which I totally love. And players are evaluated on their performance over time, and then the results are sent to scientists nationwide. And you know, he he got the idea um, because he because of his own diagnosis, and oftentimes that happens. He completely lost the right leg motion and sensation for about three months and he had to relearn how to walk. And so he feels, he attributes the, um, the fact that he's gotten his sensation back and the ability to walk back to a combination of medication and table tennis. It's hard to know. Correlation does not mean causation or, you know, you don't know if it's the medicine or the table tennis, but the table tennis can't hurt because it helps to work on a bit more fine motor skills. I would imagine in like, um, moving your feet, um, quickly. So, you know, he's inspired dozens of people who've also been diagnosed with neurodegenerative diseases like dementia and Parkinson's to join this particular program. And as I said, it has expanded and, you know, it's a very simple game and it's a blast table tennis, um, And if it improves the quality of life, why not? It certainly is not going to be harmful. It's also a community, which is also beneficial for people. But I would love to know, um, you know, the outcome of this. I did actually get in touch with this doctor. Well, I've reached out to this doctor on LinkedIn. We'll see if he... um, responds to me um just because i'd like to learn more about it and you know ms and parkinson's it's not just tremors and stiffness and slow movements it's a lot of non-motor issues and you know like anxiety and depression as well that strike people you know but is it the exercise that people are doing you know just healthy lifestyle changes i mean it's difficult to control for what actually is benefiting people what is actually helping to slow the progression of neurodegenerative neurodegenerative diseases like MS, Alzheimer's, or Parkinson's. But I think this is a very interesting um, strategy and something that we're going to look out for. Um, But, you know, I love that social um, activity as well. And it's just a great thing. And, you know, you might consider starting one in your community or if you know other people that have it. um lots of people texting in sharing their stories 18773999898 that's 18773999898 i i do suggest stacking your deck it gives you confidence you know i when i hired a lawyer to deal with my workplace bullying situation you know it gave me confidence and it i also could give the emotion over to the lawyer you know they kind of handled a lot of the um baloney that was going on and a lot of the lies and you know i'd get these letters from the lawyer and and he'd say you know respond to these allegations <laughs> i mean they were ridiculous but they you know the the bully was absolutely i mean something wrong something seriously wrong with the bully aside from that he had issues with um his sexuality as well and so uh, unfortunately he didn't feel confident to be able to come out of the closet um and and so he lived in the closet which is you know which is also um so difficult and and perhaps through that i often wondered if that was where his anger was was coming from but um if you look into bullies you will see their lives are you know their lives uh, you know are they're often drug addicted or they're they often have substance use issues as well um and so there's there's problems there they're they're sick they are sick people And that's unfortunate. And sometimes they target people who are nice or who people who are accommodating, you know, um, people who are easygoing, uh, that kind of thing. So, but, you know, get the confidence, uh, deal with it. Don't put up with it. Your mental health is not worth any job. You can get another job, um, you know, so I just, but, but I understand totally. It's a very, very difficult thing to deal with. Okay. Something else that's difficult to deal with is dating. I thought of this subject because I saw that The Golden Bachelor, which I had absolutely zero interest in watching until my niece turned me on to it. And she just thought it was the most hilarious show ever. And so I I still didn't get it. I mean, there was a part of me that was just like these women, a lot of them had had obviously had or allegedly, should I say, had Botox and fillers. And they just looked so fake. And I have a big issue with, you know, going on a show and falling in love with somebody. I don't know. I, I just don't, I just don't buy it. Um, you know, call me less than romantic, <laughs> I guess. But I don't know how you feel about The Golden Bachelor. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. You know, people felt, you know, that was, um, they loved it. They loved the golden bachelor. They needed something different from the bachelor or the bachelorette. And apparently that was wildly popular. So, um, but it led me to think, you know, how many dates do you have to go on? Oh, before I say that, I wanted to talk about, I just saw a brief interview with that golden bachelor. I don't even remember where it was. And, um, they got married. Um, he and his, the woman that he found that he didn't want to, what did he say? He didn't want to find someone that he couldn't live with, but it was, uh, the, he couldn't live without. He wanted to find somebody he couldn't live without. And it's his second marriage. His first wife um, passed away. And, but a couple of things on this interview that, I guess it was the interview and it was critique of the interview that, that he had, um, I guess she's a finance person that he married and I think he has maybe allegedly had some financial problems. And um, anyway, she's sort of a sugar mama, um, more power to him, whatever, no problem. Um, with that, but there was a couple of things that he oh he said he hadn't dated. That was it. That's what made me think of this particular subject. And you know, he said he had not dated anybody since his wife had passed away, and and this um, new wife that he had met. And so that he kind of brushed over the the answers there. So that made me think, what? How do you know if you're in a relationship? Do you? Is it like? Five dates or 10 dates or 15 dates, or is it 11 essential milestones? And what are those milestones? Well, first of all, the 10 date rule, which a lot of people ascribe to, is if you've gone on 10 dates, you're probably in a relationship. But that could be a mistake because those 10 dates could be over six months. I don't think that's a relationship. So, but if it's a once a week, I don't even think once a week is enough. I don't know. What do you think? One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. It's not a hard and fast rule. Lifestyles, religious beliefs, past experience, everything plays a role in you know shaping your approach and your attitude toward uh, relationships and, and dating. But but the eleven milestones are you know starting off with an initial interest in dating. You know you don't have to be super into each other. And, and oftentimes I say that to patients or even friends. Where I'm just like, you know, you do not have to um, marry this person. You know, just go on a date with them for crying out loud. There's so much anxiety that leads up to it, but there has to be an amiable willingness on each side. And then, you know, I hundred percent s- suggest this. I'm really good at it. <laughs> Doing an online check. Um, you don't need a full background check, of criminal investigation, or anything. No Freedom of Information to Act here. But um, you know, do an online search to find out you know a little bit about them their their past whatever especially if they give you a red flag on that first date like they won't buy you a cup of coffee um and that's a big issue you know the the money thing is a big issue i and i my sense is that women still expect to um have the man pay and or sometimes it's just you know it's shared the cost is shared but um if they you know order water and won't buy you a coffee uh, red flag. And that actually happened to a friend of mine. And, and so she had done a, a little online check, but I did one too. And then I found out, she said there was one person that she found that, but it, you know one person, you know a, a disgruntled ex-lover, uh, whatever, but I found 42. <laughs> and so they all said the same thing. And part of it was that he, he couldn't afford to buy coffee, even though he'd parked himself in front of a yacht with a Navy blazer with gold buttons on um, you know, topsiders, the whole nine yards pretending he was the captain anyway. So I definitely recommend that online check or, you know, find out about them if they, they may know somebody that, you know, um, anyway, um, somebody writes in here <laughs> that, um, you know, it's a relationship when she moves bathroom supplies into your space. That's actually a very good, um, uh, that's, that's actually a very good, um, thing. You know, when, when you have, um, just seeing a multitasking again, not good. I don't recommend it answering text messages. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, it's good. Sometimes you leave things at, at somebody else's house that you've been dating. Um, if you have a question, or a comment about this. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. So what are some of those 11 um, milestones to know that you are in a relationship? And do you have one? Why don't you call me? 1-877-399-9898. We will, uh, I've got Jono behind the lines or you can text in as well. Um, anyway, so what are some of those, um, you go on the first date, put all expectations aside, which I think I've already said, um, you do not have to marry this person. This person doesn't have to check all the boxes for you. Uh, in fact, don't even talk about commitment or what you want in a relationship. You know, you you do not don't, don't dive in really quickly. Kiss. Kiss to kiss or not to kiss on the first date. Um, you know, for some people it happens early on, it can mean something. It, it mostly means nothing. Um, whether you lock lips or not, well, that's something, but you know, for a relationship to move forward, both parties must show interest. You can tell when someone's interested in you or not interested in you. You can definitely tell when they're not interested in you. Um, you know, so don't try to be in denial or try to make something where there isn't something. Um, so like, for example, if you're the only one sending a text message or it takes them a while to respond to your text message, like 24 hours, you know, hmm, maybe wait a little bit. Um, if you don't hear from someone for several days or even weeks, it's probably best to move on.com. You know you know, it's heading toward the relationship when you start to discuss the sexual history. Intimacy is an integral part of romantic relationships, and if you're contemplating sleeping with somebody, it is wise to wrap your head around their past sexual history. Um, you don't have to know every single partner, but it's just kind of nice to know, and also talking about getting tested for STIs is a fair discussion. You want to protect yourself. Um, You know, there's some rules of thumb around, you know, speaking of sex, when you're going to have sex. And, you know, oftentimes it's the first night, first date, that can happen. Sometimes it is, you know, around the third date. But again, it's a sliding scale. There are some people who wait until they're married. Um, there are some people who have sex and they don't even take their pants off. Yes. I heard that in my clinical practice one time when you actually go to somebody else's house, you know, it's kind of moving a little bit more in the direction of a relationship. Um, anyway, um, so, um, what else have we got here? um what other let me think have you got i'm just looking at your text <laughs> messages as well um let's see what are we what have we come up with here uh meeting each other's family and friends that's typically usually meet the friends first and then perhaps the family and you know if things are going well you're enjoying each other's company and then boom Um, but getting back to sex, you know, staying over is a major milestone. And that's part of building a relationship is being comfortable in each other's spaces. So, you know, don't pretend that you're someone that you're not, um, you know, just if you're messy, show them the messiness, you know, if you have sleep apnea, now is the time to reveal that, um, bring out that CPAP machine, nothing sexier. So, you know, this time of year, it's like you're looking at your credit cards, you maybe had some debt from last year, and then Christmas came, and you want to impress that new person in your life, or you overspent on your boss, or whatever. Um, You know, your credit cards are racking up, and you just think, how can I attack that? You know, how am I ever going to get over that? You know, or you just think, I'm just going to ignore those, I'm going to ignore my credit cards, um, and forget it, I'm not going to pay um, you know, I'm just going to pay the minimum payment, but you'll pay so much interest if you only pay the minimum payment. You know, try and pay anything over that minimum payment. But you know what I think is a good idea to manage your money. And you know, I love money. <laughs> I don't have any, but <laughs> no, I like numbers, <laughs> um, and I like to sort of look at the whole thing. And um, and so what I suggest you do is, you know, look at your situation, and you know, start with your net worth write down everything you actually own you know and and put a value next to it and and you'll be surprised at what your net worth is but you know it doesn't matter if you're just starting out even if you have just graduated from school and you have student loans that's fine you know it's nice to see that net worth being built up and then put down everything that you owe so you you know if you have a few credit cards um if you have one whatever but you might have a couple, maybe you have a line of credit, maybe you have a mortgage, you know, put down everything that you owe, get an Excel spreadsheet. First of all, start entering these numbers. And, and then if you have credit cards or student loans or lines of credit or mortgage, you know, write the interest, what, what interest rate are you paying on those? And, um, and then, you know, start with, and, and also commit to stopping spending. You don't need it. And you know, oftentimes if you see something, ask yourself this pertinent question, do I need that or do I want that? And so oftentimes it's a want. Um, (laughs) Somebody wrote in and said, having dinner at a restaurant with my parents, just a few of us having dinner together, water is too expensive, laugh out loud. They charge you for everything in restaurants restaurants are so expensive anyway some of those habits we have to get out of as well you know really the point of what i'm trying to suggest to you is look at your financial situation and you know ask yourself the question do i need to or do i want to eating at home is always going to be less expensive eating non-processed foods always going to be less expensive but here you go you've got your net worth you've got what you owe you've got your credit card interest rates and your all of your interest rates written down as well commit to starting to pay off. And then if you have any investments, put that down as well. Um, What investments that you have. So you want to start paying off your credit cards, start with the highest interest rate one. And, you know, you want to make the minimum payments on all of them, but you want to start to pay off the one that has the highest interest rate so that you pay less interest. And then you just continue to pay. This might take you 20 months. It might take you 36 months. It's okay. It's gonna take some time. But as you knock off the credit cards and pay those things down, you can then take that money that you were using to pay your credit cards off and you can invest it or put it into a savings account. There you're getting there's get you're getting more interest on savings accounts these days. I'm actually not sure what the savings account rate is in Canada. <laughs> But I know that there's some in the U.S. that are 4.99%, you know, but I'm sure that it's a little bit higher than it has been in the past, maybe around 3.5%. But there's some high yield savings accounts that are, you know, up to 5.6% interest. So, you know, look around, you know, shop it, but pay those credit cards down. As you're paying those down, your net worth is going up. Because you're doing the math on that, um, and so commit to the time. You can do some math: divide it by you know how much you owe, divide it by the months, um, how much it's gonna, how long it's gonna take to pay this off. Try and pay more than your um, minimum payment on that high interest rate one. Anyway, we can, we're going to talk more about finances because I think it's a big issue for a lot of people. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. <laughs>